Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we kick off our second fireside chat today. And uh, we have none other than Dr. Jagdish Seth, who has been the inspiration behind this series of fireside chat. Uh, Jagdish needs no introduction. Personally, I have known Jagdish since uh, 2003 when he was uh, on the board of Wipro and have been working with him on and off on several initiatives. Jagdish uh, is a professor of marketing at uh, Emory University. He has written several books and, uh, and has uh, mentored and guided several students for their PhD uh, as well. Um, he has been advisor to several companies across the world as well. Recently, uh, he visited India to award uh, Prime Minister Modi the Philip Kotler Award, Lifetime Achievement Award as well, and uh, also was awarded the Padma Bhushan Award uh, as well for his contribution to the country. Uh, building on from the last fireside chat, we kicked off with Mark Bobius. Uh, where almost 650 uh, participants attended. Uh, many of them were from the banking, financial services, industry, some of them from academics. And uh, the good point uh, or the key takeaway from Mark Mobius was that India could bounce back much faster. Every business which is strong uh, on the balance sheet and which can digitize their conventional business model will be faster to emerge out. Some of the questions that are now emerging is for the industry, for the banks, is how do we raise capital to bounce back? And given the current scenario, how do we go to the market, to the investors and position ourselves? And that's where I guess Jagdish has a lot of insights and knowledge. I would leave now the podium to uh, Jagdish uh, to take over uh, the talk. Thank you, Kapil. It's a very nice introduction. And glad to be back with you virtually. <laughs> we have not been able to meet physically. Correct. And I'm very, I'm very pleased to do this uh, webinar because of uh, very good, strong, potential of India going down the road. So let's go through the journey. This COVID-19 epidemic and especially lockdown procedures brought the whole economy worldwide, but India I'm talking about, on a fast elevator, all the way from Empire State Building as an analog in America metaphor, or Burj Khalifa, which is even a better analog because the economy was so well doing and it came along with a fast elevator, which means it shut down totally like a switch between both production capacity as well as consumption capacity. So supply demand both shut down. While it has come down very fast in an elevator, it will go back step by step only. It will have to climb back step by step, which means very quick recovery like a V-shaped is not going to happen in terms of economic aspects the GDP measurements, et cetera, even if you do it in a purchasing power parity. However, what will happen in a V-shaped situation is going to be the stock market. As the economy reopens back again, as we are experiencing in America, the stock market is anticipating the good things happening. And unless there are events like we have the street demonstrations, if you have no events like that, the stock market will anticipate more and more and in the process will be ahead of the GDP, ahead of everything else, the typical macroeconomic measures. In the short run, the economy in India will behave like a surplus here and a shortage there. So any activity where the consumer has to come to you or the user has to come to you, you cannot go to the consumer, will have a tougher time recovering back again not only because the new procedures will be put in place from a coronavirus safety viewpoint, social distancing as we call it, whether those are airports, 
shopping centers, whatever they are, they will have a harder time because the customer has to come to you. However, industries and companies which can go to the customer will be a lot easier, which is why you have seen enormous growth of e-commerce companies, delivery people quite a lot. There's a shortage surprisingly of that capacity. Similarly, if I can digitize the content, which is a second dimension, if I don't have to sell a physical good or experience that the customer has to come to me, but if I can um, make the offering digitized and it can be going over the internet, for example, those businesses will do very well. So entertainment is a classic example. I cannot go to the movie theater, but the movies can come to me uh, because of the streaming, for example as all the Hollywood producers have switched over from first release in theaters to first release on streaming services like the Disney or the Netflix. Phenomenon was always there. All publishing industry is online now. So I can get my journals, I can get my books, anything that I want, both in a digital world and even in a physical world. Our education system has gone through the same thing. And one of the key changes that's taking place, at least in places where there's the infrastructure information technology infrastructure is that even healthcare is going online. So if I can do that, those, those industries are in shortage in demand, like a personal, you know, all, all anything about the healthcare aspect right now, uh, personal protection equipment, for example, pharma industries, they're all going to start earlier compared to others, just as a comment. My second comment is that 2008-2009 financial crisis had to do with capital primarily. The banks had over leveraged themselves, one to 50 ratio, which is considered not appropriate, but the American banks will allow to go into universal banking. They could do insurance, they could do real estate, for example, and it collapsed because of the leverage that they exercised using the housing platform primarily. So the question is that it was mostly a financial bailout. This COVID, 19 pandemic is all about employment. Countries will be measured about how many people can be back in the workplace or how many new people can be employed. So we are watching the employment numbers much more so than the actually banking numbers in some fashion. Keep that coming, there's an important reason I'm pointing that out. So many of the rating agencies will have to change their view, which is based upon more traditional industrial models and this will be very different models. In fact, since the 2008-2009, everything about the traditional econometric approach that I studied and I taught, forecasting the business cycles are just not there anymore. Who would have imagined that in the S&P 500 today, seven of the top 10 companies will be non-industrial companies. They have nothing to do with hardware like General Electric, which is on its way out, or retailers, which are all physical products, it is all about the FANG companies, for example, or counterpart. You see the stock market today blessing Zoom to a level that was unimaginable. Uber was the previous one. Uh, Warner Music, because it is going online, has a very good IPO at this morning news itself. So given all that situation, I think we'll have to have the rating agencies invent or create the appropriate measures for risking of the nation for the future compared to the past, just as a comment. India will have slower recovery, not a V-shape. I'm talking about the economic recovery, not the stock market recovery. We'll have a slower recovery compared to China, South Korea, Japan, because they went through the cycle early. They had like a three months lead time and they had very aggressive measures. So they're able to open the economy back again sooner or faster. We are just in the middle of the pandemic, which means please have some patience. It's gonna happen, but it's not going to happen at the same level, same time as China, Korea, Japan, or to some extent, America eventually. We are much closer to the recovery cycle of what is happening in Europe. So the British economy, the French economy, the German economy. And that's one more point. Overall, I do expect surprisingly very positive growth in India. It's a matter of timing primarily. Will it happen in six months, nine months, or two years? In my two to three year horizon, 
I do expect India to actually go back to seven to eight percent GDP growth in terms of the GDP, the way we have measured much greater growth on the PPP-based measure, purchasing power parity. And here are the reasons. The first immediate reason is de-risking from China. The whole world is very nervous about what Chinese can control the supply function. And it is very clear in the PP and the pharmaceutical area right now, where people are shifting the capacity away from China into India to some extent, so Vietnam, for example, I think that's very important to take advantage. It's not limited to pharma. It is going to be actually for textiles, for example, where we do a good job. And of course, in many industries, India is the large supplier. So you buy more from India rather than divide. I'll give you one quick example. With the tariffs put on China's import into America, which is a large market for porcelain and quartz, the major importers of porcelain and quartz are all shifting buying from India. Even though India may not be as cheap or cannot do as finished a job, it's irrelevant because 300% duty makes price equalizer. So today, you cannot supply that out of India, not only just marble and granite, but I'm talking about a little more better kind of a product pretty much. So watch that trend, these are mundane products. India has a very good natural resources to offer them, as it will be for agricultural products, by the way. I'm finding the same thing, a former student of mine, Bombay-based, who is into uh, uh, what you call uh, organic farming, has at least 10,000 farmers in his network, supplies to large retail supermarkets in UK and in Europe, uh, some to America also. Uh, it's fascinating, he cannot keep up the supply. The demand is overwhelming because local demand here is not satisfied by local agricultural producers around here. We have a mismatch of supply and demand essentially. So India is one of the becoming a second or a third sourcing destination, but it has to compete and improve. And the problem in India is partly infrastructure, partly quality standards. I'll come to that a little later on. So that's the immediate market. There are several sectors of the economy where the export market will drive India as opposed to the domestic market, the first thing. Second thing is there is a huge amount of pent up demand because India generally, we are very cautious people. We like to think about saving now for the future. We understand future obligations of children's education, the typical Asian mindset that pent up demand will be released as soon as the COVID pandemic is subsided and people are allowed to do more freely their shopping experiences. And this pent up demand will be for discretionary products, not for necessities. Necessities we already are getting it right now, like fruits, vegetables, etc. will be for discretionary products, which gets into consumer electronics, it gets into, you know, uh, motorcycles, it gets into all of that stuff. Keep that. The third point is the biggest one. For the first time in India, because of the cell phone technology, almost universal smartphone, market will shift in consumer market is the biggest market. Market will shift from physical shopping, even in a neighborhood grocery store, Panwala, um, you know, that kind of stuff, is going to shift toward organized retailing. And three major organized retailers will all have online platforms. You already see Amazon doing very well on the online platform. You see Flipkart, which is now owned by Walmart. But the biggest game changer is going to happen within a year or year and a half would be Geo Reliance. Reliance will become a retailer. With two to 300 million subscribers, which they have, they can create a market exchange very quickly because the whole payment system is in place. Access to the data is in place. All you have to do is to make sure that you have the warehousing and the supply chain managed. And it is very expected that the Reliance will create hundreds of thousands of new suppliers in India, especially small to medium sized companies, as opposed to large corporations. And now Reliance is invested heavily by Facebook, for example, but it is also heavily invested by several investment fund managers. So watch the trend. Reliance will be a game changer 
as it was in the cell phone industry. And if Reliance can do that thing, Airtel has no choice to also think about how can I organize a retailer, which means that all of the retailing will shift more and more from brick and mortar way of doing things, which was the only way they could do it, to more and more online first, brick and mortar second. One more point. In India, surprisingly, the market is more in the second, third tier market, which we're sitting in the cities like Bangalore, Delhi, Mumbai, we cannot experience that. So if you take a software engineer in Bangalore, who just graduates, will command maybe 60,000 rupees a month, maybe 70,000 single person, and I'll use male as the example, but it could be male or female. One third of his salary goes in rent as a paying guest, about 20,000 rupees. He has habits which are more contemporary, which are expensive. He has to have the internet. He has to have best camera or smartphone. He of course socializes, he has a girlfriend. They have to go to the clubs. These are all discretionary wants which have become needs. At the end of the month, there is no cash flow. Contrast that to the crane operator in Port of Mundra, he commands higher monthly wage than the software engineer, about 80,000 rupees a month. And he lives with his parents, he's married, he's 10 plus two education with two occasional technical training. And very interestingly, he has more discretionary income. Same income, his cost is much lower. He has, as I said, one third rent goes away, wife cooks everything properly, there are kids, so his discretionary income, he would like to have some of the desires, aspirations to satisfy. Motorcycle is a key one. Smartphone is another one. Taking family out for eating outside rather than eating always at home, another little luxury. But he's saving money for the future. He is both investing in schools, education, children's education, but he may be the best retail investor in the stock market. We always think that the educated class will be the only investor in the stock market. The question of how do you aggregate those little guys into a major fund? Now, if you think it can be done, it was done by LIC long ago. LIC offered policies, sold it in the rural markets through agency system, very similar to Brooks, uh, Brookbond Tea did the same thing, selling you know, loose tea, Everybody can sell the tea all the way into rural market, going on a bicycle or walking, whatever it is. It is very different way of marketing that will come about. So we think in the financial market, the real wealth to tap is those mom and pop guys, surprisingly. Just keep that in the comment of your mind. That's just the consumer side. One major paradigm I can think about for FMCG companies themselves is very simple. Anything that is unbranded, make it branded, scale it up, and you'll make money. I call it Haldiram phenomenon. If Haldiram snack can become a large corporation and go worldwide, essentially, in terms of snack in the ethnic market, anybody from India can do it. And every small town has a recipe of something in the food, beverages area. We have seen this snow, so growth of snack, potato chips. It's not just a Frito-Lay, but the local guys are coming in a big way. We have to think and imagine anything unbranded, can I brand it, put quality assurance so that it's not adulterated, et cetera, and I have a market ready for you if I can scale it up. It's a question of management mindset more than anything else. You don't have to compete, multinationals competing with multinationals. It is the unorganized sector, which is a large percent of the Indian economy can become organized from a branding marketing viewpoint. And as I said, the online platforms, e-commerce and market exchange will go from unorganized retailing, which by the way is very inefficient because from the consumer, well, from the producer to the consumer, there are nine middlemen, each one having captive capital, working capital and warehousing. That's what they do. It needs to be compressed very quickly. And with technology today, I can do it. Two-step distribution, maybe one-step distribution, direct to the consumer markets are going to emerge, which changes the paradigm in the way we not only make product, but the way we distribute the product. So that's the second area. De-risking China, immediate need, 
by everybody. And some companies will come to market there. Third, Make in India is a great, great initiative. But it is going to happen in a different way than what government has thought about. Rather than have make in India in manufacturing, which will happen, and I'll tell you, but the biggest one would be make in India in services sector. Given the world populism movement, anti-immigration policies, enormous cost of getting immigration visas like in America, H1 visa will cost you so much. So labor arbitrage is not possible. You cannot ship out your people to work where the companies are. And work cannot come to India to IT services like the TCS, Infosys, Vipro, for example. Most of the Silicon Valley companies will invest in India in terms of services employment. We have already seen Hyderabad becoming a hot city. It's not limited to IT services. Well, be for Amazon. For prof yeah, professional, exactly. Professional services, Amazon, Oracle will be there, for example, and Ernst & Young, 50,000 employees in one city. So it's financial, accounting, it's professional, legal. Think about so many other services where we have the talent in scale and size, and the world needs the talent now because going to other countries has become pretty risky now, given the populism movement, it's a lot of acrimony worldwide, political acrimony and social media amplifying. So we think there will be a large market make in India by these companies who will have captive centers, not outsourcing to Indian companies, but they will have their own employment base, Accenture, IBM, but not limited just to IT services or the BPO services like Genpact, which was a general electric facility in the old days but it's going to be for R&D. A lot of R&D money now will be coming from foreign countries to invest in India because we have the talent. So I have a very simple view. If you want to find a gold, where do you go? You go to where the gold mine is. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and learn how to dig it, and that's what's gonna happen. So that's a major, major growth engine. It's about to start. Once the coronavirus settles down, and the government policies and procedures makes it easier for them to come. There are three more platforms for growth, which is where the investment guys have to watch where to invest and where to divest. The next major, major initiative in India is going to be defense. India will become a major defense player worldwide. It is not just securing our borders, but securing the oceans around our borders. There's a very strong worry worldwide, not just in India, that China is rising also as a military power. Not only South China Sea, so you have to counterbalance it, such as Australia, Japan, US, India, getting together, you know, for maybe will have to is that India is now going to privatize the industry. Very similar to privatization after 1991 of the cell phone industry. And how much growth cell phone industry has created in India, it's almost mind-boggling. Made people much easier to do business with in many ways. Small merchants can do it today, swiping the card, swiping the card, et cetera. So defense is going to be a major economic multiplier or a stimulus. And those budgets are organized very differently than what the stock market budgets can think about. Investment will ventures. Lots of programs, military programs will transfer to India as offset business. I worked in that industry for a lot, so I have a little more awareness. So that's one area. One more area is public infrastructure. There's so much need for more airports in the second tier, third tier cities. India can easily build 100 new airports, create another logistic system, not only for people in addition to the railways and the highways, but also for cargo. Cargo is a very, very critical element in thinking about building airports. And then also the seaports. We have few seaports, but given the coastline, and since manufacturing is going to be more and more decentralized within the nation, and between countries so that you can't take a risk anymore in supply chain. I think that's one more area. 
And I must tell you the last frontier, which will be slow to come in, selective but high end, is going to be space and cybersecurity. It may be privatized even. So what I'm saying is that India will suddenly become from a low tech economy to a high tech economy, high tech engineering. It cannot compete and should not compete at the low and low priced products against Vietnam, for example, or Africa eventually, or any other place. Even Chinese are divesting low end quality and saying we will only make high end quality. India can jump the gun by starting at the high end, then coming to the low end, as opposed to starting at the low end, going up to the high end primarily, in all manufacturing in general. So there is that area. So those are the growth engines I find, and hence I'm optimistic about the future of India. I will stop here. We'll pick up about the capital side a little later on, but any questions you know, questions you have from the audience or your own questions? A uh, lot of questions, yeah. So uh, first, a few things. Uh, yeah, on the capital flows, um, yeah. uh, you hit the nail, uh, Reliance already got the investment, some of the banks have got the investment, uh, and uh, what have you. <clears throat> the nervousness in the industry is uh, that the banks are not well capitalized, and they may have to yes. necessarily raise capital to be able to then leverage yes. and, and, and provide uh, you know, finance. Uh, the party pooper has been the, the, the downgrade of India now. So it's now uh, the Moody's have downgraded. Typically, uh, uh, the nervousness here is that uh, the, it has an impact on the dollar uh, and the mm -hmm. rupee equilibrium. That uh, in case uh, also leads to, fortunately oil prices are low, so it's not gonna have a, for the time being, uh, a major impact on our uh, on our oil bill. However, uh, the nervousness in the industry and and uh, the investment managers and the fund managers has been that uh, the cost of leverage sure. go up, and the cost of servicing may also go up. Does has India done a good job of lobbying and marketing itself? To some of these, uh, you know, rating agencies, and the concern now is how do they position? Uh, how do these funds and uh, the companies position themselves to the bigger investors abroad uh, on on uh, some of these, uh, you know, uh, risk yeah. uh, that uh, suddenly you know crop up? Yeah. Um, but two three uh, comments. First of all. Let's take the banking sector itself. Very strong message I'll give you. There are just too many banks in India. India has the size but not scale in the banking business. We do need 100 banks, please. Most of them were nationalized under Mrs. Gandhi's emergency rules. We did allow private bank like ICICI Bank, HDFC, but the biggest banking sectors actually are state-owned banks. They need to be consolidated strongly upfront quickly because they do business abroad also. For the Indian export markets, they are everywhere. I mean, surprisingly, Dana Bank is in more places than people think as opposed to just SBI, for example. And each of the banks has some foreign affiliations. It needs a scale from the size and the only way you can create the scale is consolidation. So governments, since they're government owned and operated, they can easily consolidate the banks into a mega bank or several mega banks. Second thing in my earlier comment I made, namely that only companies and same as the comment by your first uh, speaker, companies that have a strong flow, strong cash reserves will serve why the COVID pandemic right now, okay? Companies that are highly leveraged and the banks, of course, the bad debts and the assets that you have. So one is to restructure that. If you're a state-owned enterprises, it's much easier to do it when you are a privately held, equity-owned, etc. So I think it can be done very quickly. And it can be done where the foreign capital comes in into that group 
very similar to Tata Sons. Tata Sons is never traded. It is a private entity, but it invests into companies which are traded. So I can create a holding company of banks, not just one bank, but two or three holding companies, all owned by the state enterprise, pretty much, diluting the equity with investors which are not stock market investors. And that's where I'll come to my second point. The largest capital of the rating is not the traditional banking capital, but it is personal wealth. Personal wealth, I'm absolutely amazed with numbers. We have now 2,000 billionaires, no trillionaire yet. And we have 50 million millionaires. Think about that. In the last century, millionaire was considered unattainable goal. We are super rich. Today, millionaire is uh, uh, table stakes. If you are high net worth, unless you have a million or more, nobody wants to pay attention to you. Their total net worth is $160 trillion. And those individuals will come without somebody in the middle. You do not need a BlackRock or a Blackstone, although they use it right now, or any wealth management company. Watch individuals in who are owners of companies, whether it's Bezos, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, for example, Bill Gates, their personal wealth, not company wealth, okay? That's a large chunk of money that can come in. Second one, there is a growth also similarly since the first energy crisis in 74, 78 with windfall money that came into oil economies or countries, which they invested rather than diversify, diversified from all, but invested abroad quite a lot. Those have become well large ones. Best example is Norwegian sovereign fund. For a small country of 5 million or whatever the number is, $1.2 trillion of assets. Now they would not like to come into a traditional equity and debt market. They want to come into this holding company architecture. So one has to just reorganize the industry or banking in India, which will be slowed down because the private banks will object that. You make a mega bank, which is a world-class and ranks in the top three, four in the world, which leads me to a second point. And this is take, please, I'm gonna be a storyteller. So wait for me rather than a- Absolutely, I mean, uh, the audience loves I just it. Want to, okay, good. So here are the, if you take the top 10 banks today, I'm amazed the top five banks are all Chinese banks. Used to be all American before the energy crisis. Several Japanese banks came in at one time after the 1980s scenario, for example. And nine out of ten banks were all Chinese, Japanese. Today it's all Chinese. Those banks are well funded. Keep the back of that kind, and that goes for ICBC, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, China Construction Bank. Agriculture Bank of China. Mitsubishi Group comes in in the ranking, by the way, which is a Japanese uh, high conglomerate, absolutely brilliant conglomerate they have. Uh, then you have the Bank of China. Think about that one. JP Morgan comes later, okay? Citibank is not even in the list among the top 10 now. I was shocked used to be the premier bank. You have a BNP Paribas from France, for example. You have the Bank of America. And you have uh, obviously Wells Fargo from America. Isn't that interesting? So don't look at the Western world for banking business in terms of the way they will do business. I would watch our HSBC is another one, which is you know Hong Kong based, but it's in London in the Canary Wharf. Where, what they're doing becomes the role model, where they are investing, how are they restructuring their bank would be very important. And the last person, our last entity I would watch is, <laughs> it's fascinating. One of the biggest banks is not, not a bank worldwide, about three trillion dollars of assets is surprisingly post because the ordinary people saved when the British system was in place, 
with the postal system because postal system went everywhere. I just gave the money to the postman for the paperwork at that time. Today it can do electronically. It is $3 trillion of asset becoming a bank now by regulation change. It's owned by the government anyhow. The Ministry of Finance in Japan controls that. In where the capital is coming. Third, we have to understand new set of capital coming in, which means traditional models, what we do in the banking and financial services may or may not be the future. The third largest capital surprisingly is coming from foundations. Foundations have become mega foundations. Bill Gates Foundation is 50, 60 billion dollars. It's not a small entity. Rockefeller Foundation, which is a traditional one, has grown very well. And these foundations are calling the shots. And therefore, they're telling companies like BlackRock, you have to invest through them as a medium, invest only in ESG companies. Environmental, societal, governance, which is not the way investment comes. And if you look at the last one or two years, those investment funds or portfolios have done better than stock market, which is unthinkable because you are serving the society and still making money. And those foundations assets are growing faster and faster than the general economy because they allow alternative investments. So long as there's a legal advisor, right? I sit on the foundation board, so I understand quite a lot. It's interesting. So you find that this additional capital is coming and alternative investment vehicles are possible, not just commodities like gold, but there are real estate deals. I am I'm allowed to have a freedom to invest like university foundations are able to invest now into, I mean, Harvard became very, very rich out of nowhere because Mohammed El Arian was a guy who allowed the foundation to diversify into more than traditional equity debt, et cetera, you know? Uh, the diversified portfolio. So portfolio thinking has to change ultimately. Portfolio thinking that we create a risk return is obsolete. We still latch on to that one because it's a nice framework. Let me give you a couple of examples quickly. I'm sorry to be late. Sure. Point. <laughs> first of all, we <laughs> first of all we only use sharp ratio as a risk-free return as a benchmark. William Sharp, who was a professor Correct. at Stanford and got the Nobel Prize. Sharp ratio is only anchored to US Treasury bonds. Who said US Treasury bond is the de facto standard in exchange for the gold? Because we have more gold. Every central bank today has a diversified portfolio. They don't trust dollar alone. So if I'm a major trader with European Union, I have the Euro in my portfolio. If I'm a major trader with Switzerland, I have a Swiss franc in my portfolio. If I have a major trade with Japan, I have a yen in my portfolio. And eventually Chinese yuan will also become a hard currency. So my portfolio is very diversified and central banks are simply saying, we cannot trust any one nation anymore as a benchmark. Okay, just keep, keep, this is the storytelling. So please stay with me. I add gold into that reserve. Have you seen biggest buying of gold has been by central banks now? Correct. They, they don't believe, you know, that America reneged on its promise on gold, $35 you bring in, we give you ounce of gold. Nixon basically reneged because there was a run on the gold, just like run on the bank. Confidence had gone in the nation, surprisingly at that time. And, and therefore he simply said, I can't afford gold back to Which is why the currencies became floating exchange rather than a fixed exchange currency. We may go back to fixed exchange models also. I don't know. Because the current model has become too speculative, driven too much by traders as opposed to investors. Today, stock market is driven by traders, not by investors. So this is the key issue. So my view is that I think things will change dramatically in the way we look at financial measures. Long answer, I'm sorry. No worries. So uh, there are a couple of questions uh, or, uh, sure. or points uh, that have come out. Uh, one is uh, uh, the dominance of China uh, in the thing uh, 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 in terms of uh, what what uh, there has been a recent report out that uh, some of the the unicorns have a Chinese yes. investor in India. Yes. Yes. 
and uh, given the current geopolitical tension that is building up uh, right. the government cannot prevent the chinese these chinese investors uh, to you know exit or to prevent them given that they right from ptm to several such uh, you know unicorns in india there is a chinese investor <coughs> right from alibaba group to 10 cents to whatever you <clears throat> so how do we go and market and awaken these other foundations and other guys to come in and invest the money and replace these chinese so that some of these growth companies and these uh, businesses here uh, have access to that uh, yeah. uh, capital who could be far more patient and could be far more beneficial for also for india and could also make a, a powerful impact on the economy yeah very simple fortune we are very fortunate almost goddess lakshmi blessing us surprisingly there is a new triad power that has emerged compared to the old triad power which was canada us north america only two countries 12 common market and japan later entrant after world war 2 became a major economy number 2 because of all the investment made by the americans into japan manufacturing for their domestic consumption investing in japan in japan like coca cola ibm investing massively in japan taking over the industries essentially and japanese had no choice because they had to surrender their economy not just military right okay. so japan came out very well now this 15 nations control 75% of the world gdp they got the raw materials wherever they were domestic or foreign and then they added value add and made money they traded among themselves 55% of the trade was within the their own countries 45% was importation of raw materials industry like coal iron etc or agricultural right it is now becoming a new triad power geopolitically which is india china america And the question is why those and the reason is very simple economies are driven more by consumer markets not by industrial markets by government or defense markets found america a consumer economy primarily with large population america won the race against the europeans which are individual countries and china is the same thing chinese population is middle income now not even low income india is same way if you so purchasing power parity measure is very important not the traditional personal income which is the old measure it is a buying power right and it includes market basket of goods and services keep that comment right given in the alignment china and america are now in the beginning of a major cold war i'm writing a paper right now researching the paper on cold war 2.0 mhm cold cold war 1 was cold war 1 this is much more technology based cold war and new weapons are created which are i would not imagine compared to the traditional tanks for example uh, aircraft attack things or nuclear power plants even right nuclear armament these are very new weapons created weapons of the future almost looks like star wars weapons in many ways okay so given that india is in a very strategic position and a dilemma should it align with china should it align with america same decision india went through in the 50 when the world war 2 was over there was a huge pent up demand of buying appliances in those days and automobiles the western world wanted to come to india because india knew how to manufacture under the british system had accounting system for an legal system which is similar to british system so gap standards were comparable and india had already done the manufacturing outsourcing way back in the late 1800s in steel and cotton because british were influenced by david ricardo as an economist not by adam smith where it was outsourcing is really david ricardo concept is really outsourcing and you can make better even if it's cheaper to make in your country you should not do because your country's resources can be deployed to higher level of wages so why should you make bread let the spaniards make the bread you make the bread machines sell the machines to them and you buy the bread from them that was the idea 
which is how steel industry came to India, cheap labor, lots of raw materials, cotton industry came, cotton mills in Ahmedabad or in Bombay, that was all that architecture. So we know how to make it. We missed the boat because at that time, somehow our leadership thought about non-alignment movement. I cannot be on this side or that side. Mm. I need to be independent. And the non-alignment movement set us back in manufacturing. There would be no Japan, there would be no China, by the way, if in the 50s, we had become the manufacturing capital for Western companies, for their brands. We just had to offer, they would have given us the skill sets and the technology and the capital. I think India is in that same dilemma and this decade will be very critical to decide how the triad power will work. Given that China and America are distancing, the question would be, will India align with America, for example, which is very natural because very, very similar thinking cultures, not only democracies, but legal system, financial system is the same. Is it possible therefore to have that economic alignment? In that case, you have to distance from China, militarily, economically, and maybe politically. And that's the key dilemma, right? So to me, that's an overarching phenomenon about whether the capital will flow into India or not, especially from Western world. Right. So if you want to shift the capital flow from China, you have to find capital where it is and look at the political winds and the geopolitics where it is going and nest it within that thinking. And I will tell you, capital is waiting there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, capital is waiting. I'm watching companies like BlackRock. I'm watching <laughs> companies like Blackstone. Right. Those are the guys who are going to bring those capitals into the country. Some sovereign funds will come for mm -hmm. different agendas. Right. So, so capital is there out there. I think we have not learned how to market it properly ourselves. So what's your Long message to again, so Mr. Sorry. Modi? How, do, how does he want to align this now? He is now got this uh, Atman Nirbar Bano. Again, the same non-alignment and Atman Nirbar Bano message to the masses. Uh, well, it's, it's a good uh, message uh, for us to be self-reliant. Uh, again, uh, the whole alignment of this messaging is going somewhere haywire. Yeah. Uh, Self-reliance doesn't mean, which is a very important point, ownership. That doesn't mean the reliance, self-reliance in India is the domain of only Indian capitalism. Please. This is the biggest mistake we have made in the past. Today, if you go to FTSE index in London, all the major corporations which are listed in the stock market in London are owned by foreigners. Correct. Mittal Steel, Tata Steel, Tata Motors. Think about Indian companies alone. British don't have a revolt in the street. Why do we are hung up in, in terms of having this old colonial mindset that people who are colonial powers, we cannot allow them to invest in India and own the company. We have done a great job with companies like Hindustan Lever or Unilever, Hindustan Unilever. They sell the society Unilever. as well. And I, and I think they serve better than Indian enterprises. I'm sorry to say, because they have a global architecture in their mind. Quality assurance is better. Indian products cannot be sold with poor quality. We have to invest in quality in India. You have to create brands out of India because one of the soft powers of the nation is brands in India. World-class respected. Japan went through that cycle. Made in Japan was a laughing stock when I was growing up in the you know, 40s and the 50s. Today, world admires Japan because they make world-class products. Even the snobbish countries like respect Toyota and Lexus car. Think about that. Because Germans believe they are the good people in car, which is true. Germany image is the same thing. They're always excellent products. We don't have that image, please. For the domestic market even. We don't object having foreign ownership of companies so long as they don't take the money out of India for their own purposes, which means listed in the stock of local stock market. That's simple. 
because if you list in the stock or local stock market, investment comes from local entities quite a lot. So LG from excellent company in appliances, Samsung, Koreans did the same thing. So my view is that self-reliance doesn't mean owning ourselves. And today with the new structure, ownership and management can be separated. Have you seen controlling shares of all of the technology companies? You may be the owners, it's more like a general partner, limited partner, you don't have the voting rights. So one can structure the corporate entity whereby voting rights, uh, ownership is different than voting rights. So I think a lot of fear we have created unnecessarily about foreign ownership. So I'm a very strong advocate, I must tell you, that we must encourage, not just discourage, encourage more and more foreign investment, not in the stock market. I don't believe FII is a good model for India because that's all speculative, guys. Correct. They will pull the money out in four or five days. But encourage funds to invest in India in terms of manufacturing, services center, and it's happening already. Services-wise, the amount of money invested by the technology silicon company is multi-billion dollars in Hyderabad alone. And they can create 30, 40 Hyderabads very easily. Right. So, so, so I think I read the self-reliance theory very differently than people do, right? So that's right. clearly one thing. Uh, back to the notion, the capital is waiting for India. They really want signals from India about what they will do. So I think one can manage balancing the two acts for a while. And as more capacity shifted for foreign makers to make in India, away from China, I think they would be more relaxed, really more relaxed. We have more problems with our infrastructure than our policy. If right. I want to export something out of India, other than IT services, which is digital, if I want to export anything out of India, a physical product, it's a major hassle. Correct. Now, Mundra is a good port. I know a company in America in marble and granite, Indian-based, which is the largest importer. They have almost 10,000 tons a month shipped out from Mundra alone. Supply chain is managed. Wow. They're ramping up even more. Yeah, these are not small. So Mundra become problem is that in India, we still have the old manufacturing cap, uh, capital, old warehouses. It has to go from a low tech to high tech and from very dumb real estate to a smart real estate. So IoT, artificial intelligence, it's all software driven now. It's all subscription services. So India has to upgrade its inf information infrastructure, etc., And then it will come out very smoothly. Last comment in this area. I'm strong advocate of having large retailers come to India, Walmart, which is a bone of contention. I feel totally opposite of the Indian lobby on this one. Walmart will come to India, not for Indian market. Amazon comes to India, not for Indian market, please. It is the foreign market where Indian suppliers can provide that capacity. They wanna diversify from China. Right. Walmart bought so much from China. So in India, they can easily create half a million new suppliers. They will put quality discipline on those manufacturers. Their standards are better than government standards. This is what Sears did at Whirlpool, where I was the advisor in terms of branding is owned by Sears, Kenmore brand, higher standards than General Electric. Toro, which is a lawnmower company, Sears brand, better quality than Toro. Retailers will call the shots in terms of shaping the manufacturing in India. So India is the largest diamond cutter in the world. There is no second company or country. Walmart and Sam's Club is the largest retailer of diamond in America, not the jewelry shops. Right. I see the day when Indian diamond industry can supply a lot more diamond where Walmart is the customer and they take you to Canada, they take you to Mexico, which loves the same way as we love, it's all the same culture, and to China. There's no way you can enter Chinese market without having these large retailers online or physical to allow you there. 
So back to that Alibaba worry. Alibaba may invest in India to match Amazon strategy or to match Walmart strategy or to match now Reliance strategy more for sourcing purposes. Okay. To sell products into the Chinese market. See, we have not thought about those possibilities. And one can steer the thinking so we can create hundreds and thousands of new small mom and pop manufacturers, but high quality. So unorganized sector becomes organized in manufacturing to a level of excellence where world admires that. Not for handicraft, which we do very well, but you talking about modern products. And we do that in auto components. We do that in pharma. Pharma, we are world-class. Diamond cutting, we do very well. I'm impressed with Hollywood. The quality of movies can produced in 2020 is as good as, I mean, uh, Bollywood, I'm talking about Bollywood, is as good as Hollywood. Today we have directors and producers and even actors to a level of excellence, which matches anywhere world standard. So I think we have all the capabilities. What we don't have is a finish or the policy. We don't know how to package, <laughs> how to polish it. So that's my thought. I'm sorry to be so passionate, but I think, and by the way, you don't realize Indian diaspora worldwide is so important to leverage. Correct. And we have Every leveraged it uh, time and again for investments yeah, exactly. as well. And uh, lobbying into sorry, the White House I'm... as well. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll stop more getting on my pedestal in terms of way, but raise more questions, please. Let me answer shortly. Yeah. There are a couple of questions from the audience. I want to take up uh, one or two of them. One is, uh, what is the USP that will attract global companies and global investors to the International Financial uh, Center and international yeah. stock exchanges in India? And what must yeah. government do to make these IFCs and international stock exchanges successful in India? Uh, I think Pashit, you have answered and uh, in terms of yeah. who to go after, uh, but you know, from a policy and from, you know, uh, packaging it yeah. is what uh, I guess uh, would be very relevant. Yeah. I, I think there are great opportunities to do it because Hong Kong will be not allowed to continue as a major financial capital for investing by foreigners in many ways. It'll be Shanghai, clearly. That architecture was put together in 1997. The day Hong Kong was annexed back to China, the lease was over, despite all the agreements signed, Shanghai used to be the commercial capital of China before Hong Kong rose as a colony. And Chinese have invested massively there. Okay. So it's a gone, it's a foregone conclusion that Shanghai will become probably number one capital in the world and maybe balanced with by Beijing where the banks are primarily. All the five banks I mentioned are headquartered in Beijing because they have state enterprises in many ways, right? But they may be shifting their headquarters to Shanghai. Shanghai has a very strong backup in a nearby town, 70, 80 kilometers, there's a hardwire fiber optic network. It's more secure stock exchange and capital markets than New York or London. They have mm -hmm. understood the power of technology so that cyber attacks cannot take place in Shanghai. There's a hidden place someplace out there. We were thinking the same way about Bombay with some other location nearby. You cannot have your servers in the same place where you are trading. Okay? There's a whole security aspect built in. India has to do a lot more in that regard. I also believe the best way to attract, and this is not a short-term gain, best way to attract foreign capital into stock market in India is to allow as many foreign companies to list it on the Indian stock market. Hindustan delivery is already there, right? It's a listed stock there. Correct. Allow every company to say, rather than being listed in Singapore, which they do quite well, United UPS as you know, not only have their Hong Kong, they're listed for the Chinese market or whatever it is. If we allow the stock markets like a Bombay Stock Exchange or Nifty, doesn't make any difference. 
do the thing. The biggest place where it can come out, which is what the London strategy was, which never happened under their tough times, very good strategy. They created a separate stock exchange called AIM, A-I-M. Correct. If you're under $5 million capital or 10 million, very small amount, we create a stock exchange for mom and pop stocks. You don't have to go to NASDAQ or Nifty for that in India. You create a third stock exchange where the money comes in very quickly. And it is organized for the future. So all of the companies that want to go, let's say angel investing, VC capital, right? Venture capital like IDG Ventures, for example, or its counterparts in India, when they want to do exit, they only sell it to bigger guys. They are unable to do IPO in India. Well, we have other yeah. small uh, stock exchange formats, but they have not taken off. Exactly. So you revitalize that structure that you have much quickly. Because I must tell you, entrepreneurship is so universal in India. The real competitive advantage of India is its entrepreneurship DNA. And entrepreneurship is, doesn't recognize gender. Women are as entrepreneurs or better than men. Does not recognize age. Older people are entrepreneurs, so are younger. Not only just young people, but corporate executives are becoming great entrepreneurs. You also find that entrepreneurship does not recognize faith. Every faith is an entrepreneur in India. And we are multi-faith country. Every faith belongs in India. Everybody has an entrepreneur, whether those are Christians in South, for example, or Hindus in the North, for example, or Jain community all over the country. I can just give you an example. And it does not recognize our literacy. Most illiterate people are more entrepreneurial than literate people. Correct. Chitwalas in India, which is a financing arm. They are brilliant, sort of in non-banking finance right, sector. That entrepreneurship can be organized and leveraged from a financial viewpoint. India just does not have world-class VC capital. It's mom and pop. There's no scale to it. And VC capital in America is not in New York, please. It is in California. Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. So it does not have to be in Bombay. Could be a separate city altogether where VCs congregate, you know? And it could be any city. Bangalore is a good contender, but does not have to be Bangalore. Could be Hyderabad, could be Pune. It doesn't matter. I think this is where thinking has to be about the future India not the legacy India. So I think there's a lot of potential and that's where people will come and that's where to reform labor laws and all the stuff, but that can be done. That's a, I, I think we are, we are using this as a crux in many ways, more so than anything else because labor laws, the same are in Japan. <laughs> the okay. British system of labor laws, software, no collective bargaining. It's everywhere in the world except in America where we have the collective bargaining, okay? which is more efficient, more scale-oriented. So people have lived with their labor laws and manage them. And I think we complain about it. Well, Jagdish, uh, we have come to an end and I know it's been a very, very interesting talk. Uh, uh, and every time we go on our board call with you every week, uh, you know, there are always these uh, thoughts and ideas we get from you. And uh, it has been a very interesting uh, uh, discussion here. Several takeaways, which uh, I can say that, uh, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, repositioning, repackaging and reworking the strategy uh, yeah. to get the capital flows back into India and obviously the realignment uh, between China, US and uh, yeah. India. Uh, that would probably be the best thing that I can summarize. Uh, uh, before I, I conclude the session, I just wanted to also make a, a, a thank all the people who have been behind, uh, you know, organizing the team at Unoligo, the team at Equinalp Capital and Toro Finsurf. Also our media partner, uh, uh, oh, yeah. Business Standard, who have joined hands with us uh, to take it, uh, take this whole message forward to the mass market. And obviously... <laughs> as well and I just want to also make an announcement next week uh, we are going to have a similar fireside chat uh, this time uh, we are going to have uh, Jim Clifton uh, 
the chairman of uh, Gallup, who's going to talk about uh, public perception and public opinion in uh, reviving Indian economy. So it's a very interesting topic. Uh, do, do register and attend with us. Thank you once again, Jagdish, for this inspiration to start this uh, quote unquote, uh, and also being our second panelist and coming and spending your thoughts very, very fearlessly. And um, uh, the way you have kind of eloquently in a, in a story, you know, put the ideas across have been uh, really, really wonderful. Thank you so, so much and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.